chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of God's word. You may be seated. Let's watch the screen. This is week two of our series, Silver Screen Sundays, the gospel and movies. And no, we're not preaching movies. What we're doing is we're looking at popular forms of art in our culture. And you can apply this to music or TV or your favorite novels or whatever. We're looking for shades of gospel stories. If we believe that God is the creator and God is the God over the world, then perhaps all truth is God's truth. And if something is good and beautiful and right and inspiring, then it's God's. And so we're looking at uh, a few movies here this time. Uh, last week, we looked at Avengers Endgame. Today, A Star is Born. Next week, The Greatest Showman from a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago. And then uh, finally, two, uh, Toy Story 4. And we're looking for where we can see the gospel story in these movies. How many of you have seen, by a show of hands, A Star is Born? All right. So you kind of know where we're headed today. Hannah and I watched the movie and, uh, at our, at our uh, house and it was late at night, and we didn't, we, I hadn't seen the other versions, I don't, I don't think you had either, and we watched A Star is Born, and like before bedtime, and the ending came, and we're like, oh, now we have to go to bed, all right, uh, I feel like we need to like, you know, play some good, you know, some upbeat music or something before we go to sleep, so it's a heavy movie, isn't it? Uh, in some, I mean, it's inspiring in some ways, but there's, there's a lot of heaviness in this movie, and to be honest with you, like I, I think people want to come to church to feel good and uplifted, and I think that's true, and I always kind of feel pressure to do that. But sometimes, you, in order to feel good, 
and to, and to have joy, you also have to be honest and, and get into the guts of life as well. Are you with me? Sometimes you have to deal with what is reality for a lot of people because I think one thing you'd say about this movie is this movie is realistic in a lot of ways. This is what a lot of people experience in their close relationships. Maybe you have an experience like what is in this movie. I want to be sensitive to that today and acknowledge that off the bat. For some people, this movie hits close to home. And so that's where we're headed. Um, We're going to talk about what we can learn um, and the gospel truth that we can find in A Star is Born. And and so uh, this is the, I believe, actually the fourth iteration of this movie. The first uh, was back in 1937. There was another one produced in 1954. The Barbra Streisand version, which somebody told me they've seen, was in 1976, where some of her uh, scenes were filmed in Sun Devil Stadium, by the way. Uh, in Arizona, and then uh, this latest iteration here, directed by Bradley Cooper, of course, starring him and Lady Gaga, earned $434 million worldwide, was nominated for eight Academy Awards, and Lady Gaga's song Shallow won Best Original Song. And the plot involves Jackson Maine, Bradley Cooper's character, who is a famous country singer, and he's battling an addiction uh, to drugs and alcohol. And Allie, played by Lady Gaga, who is a server and an aspiring songwriter. And after one of his shows, he needs a drink. And so he pops into this bar, and he sees Ali perform, uh, and, and he's just, he's, he falls head over heels. He's smitten with her. They stay up and they talk all night about life and, and that scene that you saw in the trailer where he asked her if she writes her own songs. And, no, I don't, I don't perform my own songs. And... That is autobiographical to her, by the way. She says she was told by record producers, you're not pretty enough to make it. And they were wrong, safe to say. But part of that is true to her life and her experience. No, you just don't have what it takes. I mean, yeah, you're good in some ways, but you don't have it all in other ways. And maybe some of us can identify with that. But they talk all night, and then Jack invites her to his show in Arizona, his home state of Arizona. If you've seen the movie, when they go to quote-unquote Arizona, you know that's totally Palm Springs. Like they have the windmills, there's the San Jacinto Mountains there. I actually found out Arizona used to give movie companies a tax credit that they don't anymore. And that's probably why. Like, so they're like, ah, we'll make more money if we just stay in California. So Arizona is totally Palm Springs. But they go back there and then she performs uh, her song, uh, she wrote Shallow with him and it kicks off her career a star is born overnight she I mean people just fall in love with her the same way he has and and it's a story where her life ascends as his life descends she's a rising star and he's a falling star and so the movie is this story in contrast and and maybe you identify with that maybe you could either one of them maybe you feel like things are on the up and up for you but maybe not somebody you love. Maybe you feel like things aren't going so well for yourself. And that's, that's kind of the, the arc of this, of this movie. So after visiting his hometown, we see how Jack's addiction begins to alienate him from people that he loves. He runs into his manager, Bobby, his brother, slash manager, Bobby. And he, he punches Bobby in the face because Bobby sold dad's farm. And, and Bobby you know, gets up off the ground and dusts himself off, and he says, I told you I was selling Dad's farm. You were so drunk you don't remember. And then we start to see how his addiction plays out in his relationship with, with Allie. And, and 
how he will hurt her and then apologize. And he, and he, he loves her and he wants to elevate her and help her, but this, this addiction, this disease is getting in his way of him being able to love her the way that he wants. And we see how she now is faced with this choice about how she's going to respond to his illness, his addiction. And so this is also a movie about how addiction and and mental illness affects the person who suffers from it and how it affects the people who love them. And addiction is a psychological and physical, both inability to stop consuming a chemical, drug, activity, or substance, even if it's causing psychological or physical harm. According to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, almost 20 million Americans, uh, ages 12 and over, battle a substance abuse disorder in any given year. 74% of them struggle with alcohol abuse. So uh, three-quarters is alcohol abuse. Um, 38% with other drugs that may include alcohol, so that doesn't add up to 100% because there's some overlap. For some people, it's they battle alcohol and other drugs. Some people, it's just in opioids or some other addiction. And those are just the substances that doesn't count other things that we can be addicted to. Pew Research found that almost half of all Americans say they have a family member or friend who has struggled with drug addiction. And so that, that's going to include at least half of us here, somebody you love or maybe you, yourself. For some of us here, we have memories of childhood that are almost indescribably painful because of our experience with somebody who was addicted. Others, maybe you've just kind of known somebody from a distance, you know, some acquaintances or, or friends that you know who have struggled. We have people in our church who are in recovery. You know, this, is a, this is something that affects almost everybody. Um, these numbers are self-reported, by the way, so they might actually be higher. The thinking is some people, they just won't share their experience because they just don't want to talk about it. And so these numbers might actually be higher. The cause of addiction, it's, it's largely genetic, um, and there is mental illness that is a contributing factor. Uh, there are other uh, contributing factors in the environment, such as the chaotic home environment, abuse, a parent's use of drugs, and poor academic uh, achievement, sorry about that, poor academic achievement as children. And there are many other types of addiction. The experts are kind of torn. They'll, uh, be, gambling is a behavior that is definitely viewed as an addiction, uh, you know, over gambling too much. There's a gambling addiction that, that you know, the experts, they, they readily uh, embrace that one. There's some disagreement about other behaviors that people can be addicted to. Um, sex addiction, uh, shopping, the internet social media, and some of us might kind of chuckle at that. You know, all of us, though, probably, would you agree, feel like we spend a little bit too much time attached to this? Would you agree with that? That doesn't mean you're addicted, but we can at least kind of identify. That some, yeah, I can see why somebody can kind of get wrapped up in this, but there are people who it controls their life. It harms them. Video games, even. Shopping, uh, like spending money you don't have, obviously, and having financial trouble because there's this temporary high from buying stuff. That can become an addiction. At least some medical experts uh, believe it can. And then, obviously, an addiction to food. And many of us you know, probably find comfort in, in eating. I'm one of those people. And, and so the experts might be divided on whether some of these behaviors can be addictive, but a lot of us would probably say, yeah, I mean, if, if I, go to, I come home stressed out and I go grab a drink or I grab something to eat and I, you know, I, you know, I'm an anxious eater, you know, I'm, I'm eating not just to get food, but because it does something for me. And that doesn't mean you're like a full-blown addict, but you can at least, you can identify 
and say, yeah, I, I kind of see how this works, how we, we feel this anxiety, we feel this, this stuff that we're dealing with, and then I go to something else that helps to give me a temporary high and helps me temporarily relieve that anxiety. I feel better about it temporarily. If I do that thing, if I buy that, if I eat that, if I consume that, then I, I feel better temporarily instead of dealing with the root cause of whatever is causing that, in, that anxiety in the first place. So everybody's in agreement. One of the things we need to do to deal with mental illness and addiction for people who want to seek wellness in our lives, people who want to be whole, one of the things we need to do is renew, remove the, stig, the stigma. We need to remove the social stigma from mental illness and addiction. Anybody want to say amen to that? To remove the stigma from these things. There's a social stigma in America related to mental illness. And it, maybe it is somehow connected to a lot of people's view of Christianity, which we'll talk about. And then part of it is, it just seems like we tend to deny the physicality of mental illness and addiction, don't we? So like if somebody has cancer, you don't tell somebody to snap out of it. Oh, hey, you know, hey, well, you know, you need to think more positively about this and just take a different view and look at it a little bit differently and everything's going to be all right. We would never say that to somebody with diabetes. But when it comes to mental illness or addiction... That's, that's an answer that a lot of people are confronted with. Well, you know, hey, I know you've kind of been down for several months and feeling like you know, you're, you're unmotivated and you want to sleep all the time and you're losing weight, but hey, just snap out of it. And there's this denial that no, depression actually is connected to chemical causes as well. There, we are made of chemicals. And if those chemicals don't flow right, if, if certain neurons don't fire correctly, we feel that. And that lies behind, you know, staggering statistics. And so if we remove the social stigma now, more people feel like, well, we can admit that we're, we're struggling with this. And it's not just all in my head, but I can seek help. I can actually do something about it. Now, there's truth that thinking can change the way you feel. That's what counseling is based on. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of counseling. But we take that too far and we deny the physicality and it leads to this social stigma. So... About, I don't know, 15 years ago, 12, 13, 15 years ago, I was an associate pastor in a church, and uh, we brought in a guest speaker one day, and he was uh, this uh, pastor, um, and uh, I can't remember what the sermon was about, but he, he made it clear in the sermon that he didn't like the idea of people taking antidepressants, or like anxiety medication, for some reason for whatever reason, and he, he would kind of make fun of it, and then he had this phrase that he kept repeating, he, and I'll, I'll say it the way he said it, he's like, there is no pill or potion that can do what God can do, and he, pill, he kept adding a T to the end of potion, he, he kept, so he was referring to medication as a potion, there is no pill or potion that can do what God can do, and the fact that he kept adding a T did not increase his credibility in my mind, that he was, you know, an expert on this topic. There is no pill or potion that can do what God can do, and I thought, you just have those moments, and maybe, maybe you've had in church, where hopefully you don't have them here, but like, moments where like, this guy's nuts. Here's what he's, he, this guy's telling He's telling people to stop taking their medication. Oh, you're depressed? Your psychiatrist said, hey, take these and it'll feel better, and it's working? He's telling them to stop. Wow. 
Sometimes when you think of the implications of things pastors say, it gives you pause, doesn't it? I feel that before I, before I get up here to speak. I feel that weight. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm not saying that it, it has protected me always either. I'm sure I've said my fair share of dumb things. But, wow. Telling people to stop taking the medication that a psychiatrist has prescribed to them. Because he said there's no pill or potion that can do what God can do. And so I've chosen to take the route to speak pretty openly, pretty freely about my own experience. And I've shared before, when I was 17, I went to counseling. I had a tough, a tough uh, time growing up. And it came to a point where I, I really felt like I need to do something. And, and I got to a point in my life, I was, I was, and I was you know, new at driving, but I was driving down the road one day. I remember where I was. And uh, I thought to myself, I'm thinking about ending it. And so now I have a choice to make. I, I realized, you know, as a 17-year-old, thankfully, and I, not everybody has the, has the blessing of realizing that, or what, however you would phrase that. I have a choice to make now. If I go down this road, things are not going to turn out well for me. And I didn't even know anything about counseling, really. But I, I've heard, okay, counselors can help people. And so I'm going to go that route. And I was on antidepressant medication for nine months while I went to counseling. And it pulled me out of a hole. My experience was that, it, and you've probably heard people say this, that it leveled the playing field. So now I felt like, oh, I've got a shot at feeling better now. I was depressed. And it was, a re- it, I mean, to be honest with you, it was the result of what I had gone through. And, and you might be depressed, and the actual, there might be a cause of that. It may, it may not be just chemical for you. It could be an environment. Maybe you're in a really tough time. And so if, if you've gone something really hard and you find yourself depressed or anxious, well, you've got a, you've got a big uh, bad case of the normals, that you're a normal human being. And when we go through hard times, that can throw a person into, depre- into depression. And my experience of that, of taking antidepressant medication was it leveled the playing field to, for me to where I felt like I, it was at least a fair fight. And I wasn't just in this hole anymore, but that I could actually talk with the counselor about what was going on in my life. And it was, it was fair. I had a shot at, at making it and making something better. And then I moved away to college and I magically like started getting better pretty quickly. And, but, but that's part of my story. And I want people to hear a pastor say that. I'm not totally comfortable sharing private things about my own life like that. I don't take that lightly. It's hard for me to say that. And I value my own, my thinking and my ability and my productiveness as a person and my work ethic and what I'm able to do in life. I take pride in that. And so I have some pride and some ego on the line. I feel that. And at the same time, because of pillar potient guy, I feel like as a pastor, one of my contributions is to say to people, oh, do you feel depressed? Do you feel anxious? You know what? There's this thing called medical science, and that's all right. And you can talk to a counselor, you can see a psychiatrist, and you can avail yourself of what brilliant people have discovered, and that can help you. And for the messages that you've heard maybe out of this passage, this, you know, a passage like this, where, hey, I know you're anxious about stuff, just don't worry about it. And Jesus says, oh, don't worry about tomorrow, and they make it sound so easy. 
I know there's more to it than that. We're going to talk about what that passage is really getting to. But if you feel like you need help, go get help. And I, I, want, I want you to hear a pastor say that. As people who are a part of a church, and this is being recorded for a podcast later, and who, who knows who's going to listen to it and where they may be in life. By a show of, well, how about this, but so they can hear it. By applause, you're not applauding me, but if, if you would applaud, if you agree that people can seek help from the medical community, and that's okay, and God's all right with that. Would you applaud? Everybody hears that. People who are listening to this, wherever they are, hear this community of people saying, that's okay, and it doesn't mean you don't have enough faith because you're struggling in life. That's not what it's about. We will get into what it's about, this passage is about, but that's not what this passage is about. So, Jack and Allie, their relationship continues to face these ups and downs because of his addiction. While her career skyrockets. So, um, she meets a producer named Rez, who encourages her to, to shift her style of music towards pop music from the country that she started with, 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 with Jack. And, and her career takes off. She ends up performing on Saturday Night Live. Like, she's, she's huge. She's basically a Lady Gaga figure at this point in the movie. And Jack sees that, and he starts criticizing her out of his own pain, out of his own self-rejection, out of his, his disease. He starts criticizing her. He hurts her. And then he apologizes. Baby, I'm sorry. And then she's nominated for a Grammy, or she wins a Grammy. And if you've seen the movie, man, this, this scene is just rough. Where he hits rock bottom, he staggers up onto the stage to be up there with her, and she's on national television accepting this reward and, or award, and, and he just wets himself on national TV. And, I mean, you see that scene, and, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, it's funny in some ways. And they're like, wait, wait a second, though. This is... This is this is the reality of life for some people. This is the reality of life for some families. That there is this kind of, of uh, decline to where a person who's an otherwise good person and they have a good heart and they mean well in life, but they're in the, in the grip of something that is, that is taking their life from them and that is destroying the lives of the people around them. And he hits rock, rock bottom and he goes into rehab. And it's, and it's in rehab where he tells the counselor, where we learn as, as watchers of the movie, that he's, he's attempted suicide before. He's, he's thought about it. And he has tinnitus, which is a ringing in his ears, and it, it never goes away. And you see the idea how, okay, this is the depth of his pain and his relationship with his dad, where he just basically drank with his dad. That was how he bonded with him. And you start to see what's behind this addiction and how low Jack is and how low he's going to go. There's foreshadowing there. And, and so there's this up and down in their relationship, and maybe you can identify with that. And it doesn't have to be drugs and alcohol. Maybe you've been with somebody, or you were, were with somebody formerly, or you are now. Whereas there, this kind of, there's this, this tumultuous relationship. I, I, I hurt you, and then I'm sorry, and then there's this cycle. We know if, it, if that progressive, and it actually does become violent, we know from domestic violence research that when somebody hits you, Without some kind of intervention or help, 99.9% .9 of the time, that's never going to go backwards. It's only going to escalate from that point forward. And so the first time it's a slap, the next time it's a punch, the next time it's a kick, the next time it's a push down the stairs, that's the way that domestic violence tends to progress. And so that first, that first assault that happens, that's, that's, that's go time. 
that's when you decide, no, I and the kids, we can't be in this kind of an environment. And that's when you have to get out. Because the second time, the third time, there may not be a chance to get out. This is heavy stuff to talk about, isn't it? But it's the kind of situation that is reality for a lot of people. Now, he doesn't hit Ali. There's no domestic violence in this movie, but that's still important to say. But there is this cycle of, of, of hurting her and then apologizing. And then we see how she deals with it in the movie. And she does a pretty good job. Like there's some, you know, people who have talked about the movie that kind of go back and forth. I think she does a pretty good job of dealing with it. And there's this scene where he's been in rehab for a while and she comes to visit. Allie comes to visit Jack and meets with him. And you see how, how their relationship is now progressing, how he's dealing with his pain and how she's dealing with it in a relationship. Let's watch. Maybe you've been in a situation like that. I thought that was great acting, by the way, for both of them. And she, when she, you, when they, it shows um, Allie's eyes and she looks at him and he's breaking down. You can see what I think a lot of people probably felt, that you're observing somebody in the depth of what they really feel and watching them kind of drift away. And there's a, like, wow, this is, this is even worse than I thought. And, and she's trying to figure out, you know, I'm, I'm seeing him act this way. And I'm trying to make sense of that. And she still loves him. She empathizes with him. It's a disease. Rightly, she says that. And she hugs him. But at the same time, there's this distance. Like, wow, I'm realizing the full depth of this. But yet, she chooses to love him. Now, not, that's not always loving, of course. But it's not always the solution uh, that you just drop everything um, when somebody is, is in a place like he is. Um, of course you love the person, but love doesn't always mean dropping everything like she does. She cancels the tour and she decides she wants to, she wants to be with him and help him. And, and that's love. At the same time, there was an article, uh, Jill Rothenberg wrote an article in the Washington Post entitled, uh, a star in a star is born. Allie stayed with Jack, but with addicts, that's not always the answer. Now that's probably, it's a controversial thing to say. Um, and I, I'm, not, I'm not encouraging people to do either. What I'm talking about is just in your own mind, and of course, you, you, you love a person. And you do everything you can to help a person. And at the same time, there's a conversation that needs to take place when you have that look in your eye that she had. I'm going to love, if, as long as I'm not being beaten or torn down mentally, I'm going to love and stay. And at the same time, I'm aware of what enabling looks like or what co being codependent looks like. Codependent means I need you to need me. And enabling is just you're feeding somebody's addiction. So time, what I guess what I'm saying is in a clumsy way probably is that sometimes tough love is, is the way to go. Not always. Sometimes. It's just a conversation that you want to have. Carlos Stover, an associate professor at the Yale Child Study Center, said, and you can have one person in the couple thinking, if I just love this person enough, or if this person loves me enough, then they would just stop. And that is a misconception. Because someone who has an addiction can love their family and want to stop, and they feel like they can't. So you love the person. But sometimes it's a soft kind of love. Sometimes it's a tough kind of love. And I can't tell you what the, what the right choice is there. But one of the indicators is, are you enabling the person to continue in their addiction 
or are they getting better? If your love is helping them to get better, then I guess you continue with the soft love approach. If it's not helping them, then perhaps tough love or some kind of honest intervention is the way to go. I just feel like that's important to say. So the relationship continues to go up and down. I can't, pay, I can't play the bathtub scene in church, if you've seen the movie. But you know, things really, I mean, they ignite. And she sticks up for herself, too. She's not, she's not a doormat where he just walks over her. She doesn't allow that to happen. I think she really does take uh, a Matthew 6 approach to life. She's a, her, Allie's character is a Matthew 6 kind of character. It's what made me think of this, this scripture that we read earlier when I saw the movie. Because she seems to be the kind of person who is seeking peace. She's seeking something better, something higher. She's, she's the healthy one in, in contrast with, 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 his, with his illness. And she seems to be the kind of person who's trying to do the right thing. And trying to live a whole and well life the best that she can. And I think... That is behind what Jesus is getting to here. Jesus isn't talking to a therapy culture like we, like we are. We're, we're a culture that is open to counseling and we have medication and we want to self-actualize. And Jesus it wasn't in that culture. He was in a culture where when he said to people, don't worry about tomorrow, these are people that were so poor, they didn't know if they were going to live or die tomorrow. And there's a whole backstory here, but when the Romans came in and they, they took over the uh, the area where Jesus lived decades before he was born, some of the aristocrats in Jesus' homeland started seizing farmland. And so people used to work on their own farms. Those farms were seized from them. And they now they were plowing the same fields for a fraction of the wages. And they were dirt poor and, and struggling to make ends meet and struggling that their kids wouldn't starve. And it's to those people Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. God clothes the birds and, he, and, and the grass and your heavenly father knows that you need these things. And so here, and do this instead. And he talks about a lifestyle that is beyond just worrying and being filled with anxiety about just money and material things and the next thing. Now here's what the passage doesn't say. It doesn't say don't work. It doesn't say don't plan, don't save. Those are ways that it's been twisted. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say don't take antidepressant medication, pillar potions. It doesn't say that. What it says is there is a better life for you than being consumed with anxiety that drives a lot of people to addiction, that drives us to behaviors, whether it's a full-blown addiction or not, that just aren't good for us. You know, for me, the most dangerous bottle, and I'm not even joking, the most dangerous bottle to me is a Coca-Cola bottle. Because I, I just, I want sugar, and, and, and I will get so unhealthy so fast. If I, in my stress, in my anxiety, if I just ran to, you know, foods and ate the way I wanted to all the time. And, and so I think Jesus is saying here, there's, there's a higher plane of existence for you and me. That God has created us in his image, like we saw in Genesis a couple of series ago. In the image and likeness of God, and there is purpose for your life and meaning for your life, and you mean more than the rat race. You mean more than just feeling like you're a, you're a machine who just has to just go make another dollar all the time, and, and you're run down, and you're not getting enough rest, and you're just filled with anxiety, and it just takes its toll. 
I mean, I, I know so many of us know what I'm talking about. You feel that. Jesus says there is more to life than that. You can choose a way of life because that way of life leads to the, the Jackson, Maine kind of decline if it goes too far. But it, you can choose a kind of life where no matter what happens to you, you can be a non-anxious presence like Ali was in that scene. You can be the kind of person who's seeking wellness. It doesn't mean that you, yeah, I just, it's so easy, I just stop worrying. Like, it doesn't mean that. It means you're a person on a journey where, okay, these things are happening, these things are coming at me, but I have the power to choose how I'm going to respond to those things. I am not powerless in this world. I'm not a slave. I, I'm free to choose, to decide how I am going to respond to the things that happen to me. And I want to choose peace. I want to choose wholeness. I want to, I want to choose what Jesus says to choose here. When he says, seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And all these other things, all the things that we need will be given to you as well. He'll provide those things if you seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And those are like religiously loaded words for a lot of people. Kingdom and righteousness, what does that mean? It just sounds like biblish, you know, Bible speak. What does that mean? God's kingdom, like we pray in the Lord's Prayer, it means God's leadership. Instead of the Roman Empire, Jesus talked about God's empire. That was the total opposite. The Romans were a domination empire of the haves and have-nots. It's all about getting ahead. It's all about me first. It's all about screw everybody else. God's kingdom is the opposite of that. God's empire is the opposite of that. God's about, let's, let's make life work for all of us. Let's make sure that the most vulnerable are taken care of. Let's work for peace as far as we possibly can. Let's value every single human life, whether they have money or not. We're dealing with that right now as a country. Let's be honest. At the border, part of our conversation right now as a country is who matters. And yes, there are laws, and, and, and it's complex. And I, again, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not um, minimizing the political differences of opinion and, and the real philosophical and thought-out beliefs that some people hold about the way they vote and, what they, and how they respond. I'm not minimizing that. Everybody's welcome here. If you're a Republican or a Democrat, welcome home. Right? You're welcome here. What I'm saying is a situation like this causes us to ask questions about are we seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness as a people? But it's a question for us individually as well, especially when you have a loved one who's hurting or declining the way Jackson Maine is or your job is just working you to death or you know, the kids are you're just struggling. We have so many people just... You know, you're at a place in life where it's just, it's hard. What Jesus is saying here is you have the power to decide. You're not a slave to circumstances. You can decide, I want to be the kind of person who works for peace. I want to seek God's leadership in my life. I want to be a part of that kind of empire. And what does righteousness mean? It means to do what's right by everybody. It just means, hey, we can all live here in peace and, and, and I, want everybody, I want everybody else's good the same way I want my good. And we're, we're all on the same team. We're the human race. It's that kind of a vibe. To seek God's leadership and to do what's right by everybody and live that kind of a life. That's what Jesus is getting to here. And when it comes to you know, mental illness and addiction and suicide, I don't know at what point a disease takes over and choice ends. If it choice ever does it, I don't know. Maybe we always do have a choice. Or maybe the disease is so powerful it does take away choice. And so when people ask about you know, loved ones who have committed suicide, 
and they think, well, I have a choice. You know, you're talking about the, the, the empowerment to make a choice and live with peace and seek wholeness, but they didn't make that choice. And they're like, well, I don't know. At what point maybe they couldn't make a choice anymore. I don't know. That's why I don't give easy answers about, you know, I have a loved one who took their own life. Where are they now? Are they in heaven or hell? Or what? I don't make pronouncements about that. What I say is we believe that we, as we sang earlier, we have a good father, a loving God who knows people's hearts. And as Jesus says in this passage, your heavenly father knows that you need these things. So I leave those people in God's hands. And you know what? That's the best place for them. They're so much better off in God's hands than any human hands that I know of. And so if you've experienced that kind of pain, I would just trust God with that. Just leave that in the hands of a good, good father. But I know the quickest way to believe you, that you can't do anything, to believe that you're powerless, is, is to think you don't have a choice. And so I always tell people, you know, as, as, far, as long as you can, it doesn't matter how, how you know, sad you become, how anxious you become, or how much you feel like you're trapped in an addiction, you, you just make that choice as long as you can to seek healing, to seek wellness, to seek wholeness, to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And God can take care of so many of the root causes and a good counselor and, and, and medication and, and psychiatry. And, and there are so many resources that can help you to get on this, this path. So uh, what does it look like? You know, I'm going to wrap it up here. What does it look like to seek God's kingdom and, and God's righteousness? Maybe you're not facing an addiction. Maybe your loved one is not facing that right now. Maybe you're the typical American who is overworked, under-vacationed, and, and you're just run ragged and finances are tight. And that's just a constant drone in your life. It's just a constant thing you have going on. And there's anxiety there. There's worry there. Once again, congratulations. You have a case of the normals. That's it's how we all feel. And maybe it's hard for you to be fully present with the people that you love. And it's hard for you to be a non-anxious presence you know, with your kids. I mean, easier said than done, right? And, and, and at work. And, and there are so many things that life throws at you and it makes it hard for you to seek God's leadership and to do what's right by everybody and live a life of peace. And, you know, what does it look like uh, to do that? One of the things, I shared this back in, uh, in our previous services um, that uh, I picked up over the past couple of years out of my own story. And because I, uh, I was a person and probably still am, well, not probably, let's take out the qualifiers, still am a person who loves to work. And I can be, I don't know if it's an addiction, but it's probably close to it, addicted to work. Because I just love it. I love getting stuff done. I love crossing things off a to-do list. I love being productive. And I've also believed that the lie that I had to run myself ragged all the time, go, 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 be a machine, just produce, produce, shock people by how much I can get done. And just, and, and, and just, you know, even as a pastor and starting a church, you know, just go, 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 go all the time, which is super unhealthy to, to do. It's a horrible thing for a pastor to model, but those are the things that I believe that I had to do that. And, and that affected my family. Part of our story over the past five, seven years has been me learning how to live life with the people that I love instead of being somewhere else mentally because I just love work and I'm, I'm, I'm full of anxiety because I believe I have all these things that I need to get done. And if I don't do them, 
then we, we won't have what we need as a family. And so that's justifying it, of course. If I don't work all the time and ignore my family, we can't have what we need as a family. So I'll love my, my family by working all the time and ignoring them. And welcome to humanity. Uh, and I finally, we got to the place where that obviously wasn't working. And my excellent wife is sitting here. And, and uh, it just wasn't working anymore. One of the little tools that I picked up that helped me, and this is what I shared back in the previous services, I don't know, a year and a half ago, I was listening to the radio. It was like, some, it was like a Christian radio station or Catholic radio, or I can't remember. And, um, and uh, somebody suggested, if you're having a hard time with anxiety and being fully present with your family, try this. And, and I, I started doing this. And um, I had to do it a lot at first, and occasionally now. And it's when you're on your way home, if you work outside of the home, when you come home, before, and I'll just show you, tell you what I do. I pull into my neighborhood, and there's a little curve around, you know, goes onto our road. And I stop in that little curve. Stop the car, put it in park, turn the radio off. And I, I say to myself, and this is what I heard on the radio, and this is what I say to myself. You are now going to the most important job you have. And that's loving your family and being a great husband and dad. And that's your most important job. And then put the car in drive and walk in the door. And I walk into this amazing family that I am unbelievably blessed to have. And (laughs) thank you. And if you feel like that, and I would encourage you to try that. And uh, I didn't tell my wife I did that for a long time. And after we talked about sharing this in a sermon a few months ago, she said to me, I've noticed a difference. And so that was, that was the best thing that she could have said. Now, with my wife sitting right here, let me confess to you, do I have it all figured out yet? Not exactly. Um, so I'm still a work in progress, but it helped me. To instead of getting into this you know, just impossible, hopeless rat race trap of anxiety and being a slave to anxiety. Uh, I, can, I can take the Jesus route, what I think Ali did in the movie. I can seek God's kingdom and his righteousness, God's leadership, and doing what's right by everybody around me. Not just being consumed by what I want to do, but do what's right by everybody around me. What would that look like for you? In closing, I want to ask, what does it look like for you to... to Get off the hamster wheel of anxiety. And maybe it is something to do with mental illness or addiction or in your own life or somebody you love. Maybe it's not that at all. Maybe it's just busyness. What would it look like for you to seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness? To adopt a new way of life, this Matthew 6 way of life. Maybe for you it would look like grieving. Like we talked about last week, every loss must be grieved. Maybe it is somebody you love. Maybe it's the loss of a childhood because you had to walk on eggshells around somebody who was an addict. Maybe, maybe it looks like grieving that and then, and then able to, being able to get on that path towards peace. Maybe for you it's admitting that you have an issue with a substance or a behavior. And I've been running to this thing to make myself feel better. I've been a workaholic to try to relieve anxiety and it's not working anymore. And maybe that's what it looks like for you, uh, maybe you know in your gut 
that there's something going on, but there's the stigma. And so for you, this, the first step is to remove the stigma in your own mind. And no, I'm a human, I'm made of chemicals, and it's time to do something and talk to somebody about that. Maybe for, for you, like Ali, you love somebody who is struggling. Maybe it has nothing to do with drugs. Maybe it's just it's a struggle with somebody you love. It could be a parent, it could be siblings, it could be a spouse, it could be friends, it could be coworkers, it could be a boss. And for you, the step is, okay, how, how do I seek peace in this relationship and get on the Matthew 6 path like Ali so I can be a non-anxious presence most of the time as, far as, as much as I possibly can and not just be dragged down with this person to the bottom? Maybe, maybe that's the path to peace for you. Whatever it is, I do believe it's possible for everybody. I think that Jesus has laid out a path that leads to life, that leads to wellness, which is part of the reason we named this church what it is, that leads to wholeness, that leads to salvation, that leads to better, a better marriage, a better relationship with your kids, a better relationship with yourself internally. That We're invited. We have the power to choose to seek God's leadership and to do what's right by everybody. All right, well, I invite you to pray with me. God, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for uh, the most empowering message that we could be given. That when Jesus says seek, it's an action. And we figure that we can take that action. I can, I can choose. Don't worry. I have the power to make that choice. Okay, I'm not going to be filled with anxiety about life so that I can't even live right now fully. But I'm going to choose to seek. I'm going to take another action. Your, your kingdom, your righteousness. And all the things that I'm anxious about will just, those things will fall into place. Those things will come. But by chasing them, there's this ironic thing that happens where I'm, I'm depleted and I'm dragged down to where ultimately we can get to a place where we've lost hope. Like, like Jackson in this movie who takes his own life. God, for people who are feeling like they're in a desperate situation, and easy answers won't work. May we somehow grab a hold of your words. Wait a second, I have a choice here. I can choose not to worry about tomorrow and I can choose to seek. There's still hope for me. I don't need a way out that's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Even if, I, if, if it's hard for me to see that, if it's almost impossible for me to see that, I still have a choice. Jesus says here, I still have a choice. And I want to get on the path towards your leadership and, and doing what's right and living in peace. And I want to journey towards wellness. For those of us who are being challenged because there are other people in our lives who don't seem to want to do that. Then it's a choice for us like uh, the one Allie made where you're seeing this person and, and, and what's really going on and you, you love them and you have to decide now, okay, what does love look like? Is it the kind of just soft, supportive love? That, and, and if that works, then perfect. And if it doesn't, is it tough love? 
But if I'm on a path to peace, I'm able to see that more clearly. God, we thank you for the message that we're, we're free to not live uh, the overly busy, depleted life that the typical American gets sucked into because we're a culture that just believes in working too much and not taking enough rest. And God, help us to know that we're created in your image and we're worthy of rest, that we're worthy of a day off that we're worthy of self-care and and that that's actually what leads us on that path towards being a non-anxious presence, a Matthew 6 kind of a life. God, in this final song, we sing uh, to you in celebration and thankfulness and our prayer continues. This is not a one-off thing. It continues the rest of today and tomorrow and this week and seek first, keep on seeking. We want to keep on seeking your kingdom and your righteousness over the the next months and year. It's a process. And there are times when we're going to feel like we're failing at it and there are times we're going to feel pretty good, but that's just part of the journey, the ups and downs. So God, we say together, we want to seek your kingdom and your righteousness. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.